Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the Bible and modern standard Arabic with Rana Isa, Assistant Professor of Translation at the American University of Beirut. We'll be talking about her recent article titled The Arabic Language and Syro-Lebanese National Identity, Searching in Butrus al-Bustani's Muhit al-Muhit. This article is part of a larger project on 19th century translations of the Bible into Arabic, entitled A Bible Beginning. Rana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shirin, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this work, not just because I think it casts a new light on the scholarship around the Nahda or the 19th century and 20th century period of uh, Arabic revivalism in literature, but also because it shows us the way that origin stories about something as big as a language or a religion can shift over time and how they remain dynamic throughout history and people use them in different ways. The main topic of your article, Patrus al-Bustani's Mahit al-Mahit, forms the center of the article and it's an Arabic lexicon that's written in 1870 by a Christian author. It presents this alternative history of Arabic, which I found so fascinating, as a language not necessarily rooted in the Qur'an, but in the Bible. So can you tell us a little bit more about this translator, Butrus al-Bustani, and what was happening as he was writing this lexicon? Yes, uh, Butrus al-Bustani is a foundational uh, figure of Arab literary modernity. He was born in 1819, in Debye, uh, in Mount Lebanon. And he studied in the school of Ayn Waraqa, which is a Maronite school. He was a, ca- he was a Catholic. And Ayn Waraqa is in Kisirwan. It's a school that was uh, started by uh, Rome or with a lot of funding from Rome and some of the local elites in uh, the region um, who wanted to send, who didn't want their kids to go all the way to Rome to study. So they started a modern school uh, in Kisirwan for Christians. And this school was one of the earliest er- uh, schools of uh, Renaissance learning in uh, Mount Lebanon or Syria. Mm. So, so what, what we know because he went to the school is that he was well-versed in Latin and Italian, as well as Syriac and Arabic. Wow. Uh, plus the modern sci- the natural sciences and uh, other Renaissance uh, forms of knowledge. Uh, so this is Bustani's uh, upbringing. He was uh, being taught to become a scribe, and he comes of age uh, at a time when the American missionaries and uh, the Jesuits are moving back into Beirut, and they are starting new schools, they're uh, interested in opening new hospitals, the Protestant missionaries, the Americans, are also interested in translating the Bible, and he is an extremely able young man who learns English very quickly and goes into service with the Protestants, first as a secretary and then as a teacher, and later on works with them on the translation of the Bible. Hmm. So this is a time of a lot of dynamism in Christianity in the Middle East? Absolutely, absolutely. This is is a time when Christians uh, in the region, in the Levant, are feeling uh, that they have the backing of West, strong Western powers, both in terms of uh, military backing, as we eventually see when the war breaks out in 1860, but also uh, in terms of intellectual soft power kind of backing that we find uh, uh, 
uh, with someone like Bustani and others who worked with American missionaries. You just mentioned that uh, Butrusul Bustani translated the Bible. So maybe we could explore a little bit what the Bible meant and what languages it circulated in, in this period. Yes, Butrus al-Bustani's translation of the Bible, what I call in my work this Myth-Bustani Van Dyke Bible, because it was a Bible that uh, two American missionaries, uh, famous American missionaries, uh, worked on together with their Bustani, their Arabists, they, both of them have uh, published also in the Arabic language, and they were working with Bustani as well as with uh, two other main native uh, translators, Nasif al-Yaziji, who is a Greek Catholic and never converted. By the way, Bustani becomes Protestant uh, at ah. some point. And uh, Yusuf al-Asir, who is uh, a Muslim sheikh of very high standing in the, in the judicial courts uh, in Saida. So this is, a, in, in one sense, this translation of the Bible is a multi-sectarian translation uh, funded by American missionaries. Also, they work together with uh, Bustani on it. I want to, at some point, I, I would like to um, link uh, th this translation to talk about it in terms of the lexicon. But before I do that, I would uh, like to spend a bit of time to talk about why this translation is so interesting and so important for understanding the, the changes or the transformations taking place in Arabic at the time, because it is the context, really of Muhit uh, al-Muhit. Mm -hmm. So the, the Bible has been translated to Arabic uh, for a thousand years at least. Mm -hmm. This is what we know of. The first textual evidence we have of Arabic Bibles is from uh, South Palestine uh, monasteries. They're from the late 8th century. Wow, that's uh, early. That's really early, yeah. And they go on being translated throughout the history of the, uh, of the contact between Christians and Muslims because these were communities that have been living together for a more than a thousand years. Right. Especially after the, uh, the Levantine uh, conquests of the Arabs of, um, of Al-Hijaz, they felt the need to uh, translate the Bible to Arabic, it seems, because uh, the Christians who were fighting together with them um, who, who went together with them into the Levant, had Christianity in common with the Syriac-speaking Christians of that region. So their translations are start as part of that uh, history. And they continue. We have major translations uh, that were happening uh, in Andalus, in Damascus, in Baghdad. There is, um, the Hebrews were also uh, doing their own translations, and the Christians were continue to translate uh, throughout for themselves, but sometimes also for the Muslim elites. When they were translating for the Muslim elites, their uh, works, the, the, the Bible was uh, classical or written more in a classical style. So when the 19th century comes, it's not as if the Arabs didn't read the Bible in Arabic. They've been reading, they know their Bible so well, um, that it becomes remarkable that when historians talk about the translations of the Bible in the 19th century, they say often that the, these uh, translations modernize the Arabic language. Huh. That's interesting because uh, I've seen some um, fragments of translations of the Bible in Arabic from the Cairo Geniza, um, which date at least, uh, as you're saying, you know, close to a millennia. And actually they're... Um, there are many from later periods as well. So it seems like a project that was continuous over a long period of time that people took to over and over. So what's the connection between a translation of the Bible and an Arabic lexicon? This is really interesting, uh, this question, because lexicons uh, 
in Arabic have been very intimately associated with the Quran, with Islamic sciences, with hadith, well, mainly with the three uh, lexical sources are hadith, Quran, and uh, jahili poetry. So when uh, Al-Bustani translates the, the Bible, he gets a sort of illegitimacy, I think, uh, enough power in him, uh, legitimizes himself as a philologist and decides to write uh, uh, an Arabic lexicon. This is not the first time an, uh, a Christian decides to write an Arabic lexicon. Hmm. But the difference between, say, Butrus al-Bustani and the earlier lexicographer, Christian lexicographer, Germanus Farhat, who was the 18th century patriarch of Aleppo, is that Bustani wanted a general lexicon of the Arabic language, that meaning that it was not a religious lexicon. Hmm. So Germanus Farhat wrote a religious lexicon that is in Arabic for uh, Christian Arabs to be able to read better the Bible. I see. Bustani was writing a general lexicon for anybody who uses the language to, to uh, be able to, like we use lexicons, to reference their work in his lexicon. So you mentioned that the source for classical lexicons, if we might want to call them, um, for Arabic lexicons generally, the main sources were Islamic. Were those lexicons also universal or general regarding the Arabic language, or were those lexicons religious lexicons? No, absolutely not. The Arabic lexicons, Arabs really distinguished themselves in lexicography. They, of the sciences that they were excelled at, definitely lexicography was a contribution to world uh, knowledge mm -hmm. as a genre. The lexicons that we associate with, there are so many and so varied in their genres. They have vocabularies and glossaries that are specialized, say, to medical practices or to poetry. But you also have the general, the massive lexicons of 80,000 words of Taj uh, al-Arus, for example, from the 18th century. You have very different types of lexicons. You have also specialized religious lexicons. Lexicons that specialize in foreign words that uh, have entered into the Arabic language. So you have all these lexicons. Uh, the main lexicons, of course, were general, and the lexicons that Bustani depended upon for his work are also general lexicons. For these general lexicons, what is so interesting uh, about the trajectory or the, hist the diachronic history of Arabic lexicography is that those three textual sources, the Hadith, the Quran, and the uh, Jahili poetry were predominant hmm. uh, in them. So what does Budrus al-Bustani do differently? And maybe you could illustrate with an example? Yes. So Budrus al-Bustani introduces the Bible. Uh, the Bible becomes uh, as another lexical source that he could use to sort of illustrate sometimes some of the lexemes that he, uh, uh, that he uh, defines. But also uh, the Bible becomes uh, a sort of legitimating center for explaining some of the etymological roots of the Arabic language. Uh, so say if he... Uh, one of the words that he uses, uh, that he gives a Hebrew Syriac uh, inflection to, is the uh, concept of Allah. So Allah for Bustani, uh, for, uh, for the earlier, the classical lexicographers never really uh, were able to agree on the origins of the concept of Allah. Mm. 
So they have 20 different uh, hypotheses. With Bustani, he adds that the 21st hypothesis <laughs> is that it is uh, perhaps of Syriac uh, or Hebrew origins, both of them uh, obviously biblical languages. Mm -hmm. So the, the, this is how the Bible enters. So through etymology, also through textual witnesses, but also uh, concepts, new concepts in uh, in Muhit al-Muhit that would not uh, have been uh, t taken into uh, other lexicons, although the Arabs might know them. Say, for example, Kanisa. The Arabs understand the concept of Kanisa, but you might not find it in the lexicon. What does Kanisa mean? Kanisa is a church. Mm -hmm. um, or... Um, I'm trying to think, or the concept of Masih, which is ha which has a very interesting uh, definition in Al-Bustani. Maybe we could read that definition? Absolutely. So Masih generally today refers to a Messiah, but also specifically to Jesus? Yes. Okay. So uh, just to explain how this works, um, when you write lexico lexicons uh, in the Arab way, mm -hmm. or at least in the classical way, what you do is you look at what your predecessors have done, you take in their work, so you absorb it, and you add to it. So the lexicon is, one, in one sense, a palimpsest uh, that just keeps growing and growing, mm -hmm. especially for those that we use uh, so often, like Lisan al-Arab, say, or Taj al-Arus. Uh, this is how they were made. So Bustani keeps the methodology. Mm -hmm. He... Uh, uh, he wants to absorb his predecessors and he wants to add on them. So he really sees himself as part of a tradition. Yes, or he's positioning himself as part of a tradition. I do not know how he sees himself, hmm. but he positions himself as part of hmm. a tra uh, tradition. And in this particular instance, when he is defining the lexeme Masih, uh, Jesus or Messiah, uh, he uses a 15th century lexicographer, a very famous lexicographer, Al-Fayruz Abadi, Majdiddin Muhammad bin Yaqub Al-Fayruz Abadi, mm -hmm. uh, who writes a, the lexicon called Qamus Al-Muhit, gives us in Arabic the word, the word Qamus becomes synonymous with dictionary right. after his... Oh, that's uh, where it comes from. Yes. So this is an extremely popular um, dictionary that is translated to Latin, to Urdu, to Persian, and to Ottoman Turkish. Um and has more than 5,000 manuscripts now today that have survived. So wow. extremely, <laughs> extreme, it's a bestseller yeah. in terms of, it's like the Oxford English Dictionary of, of uh, medieval times. Wow. So he uses that to, try, uh, to, uh, to define the concept of Messiah. Now, before, I, before we talk about Qamus, let's just read it because it's a, it's a strange definition. Muhit mm -hmm. is repeating what Al-Qamus has written. And this is what Al-Muhit says. Al-Masih... Isa, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, li barakatih. Wa dhukirat fi ishtiqaqih khamsina qawlan. Wa dhukirtu fi ishtiqaqih khamsina qawlan fi sharhi li masharika al-anwar wa ghayrih. Wa dajjal li shu'mih. Wa huwa kis-sikkin. Wa al-qita'a min al-fidda. Wa al-araq, wa al-sadiq, wa al-dirham al-atlas, wa al-mamsuh, bimithl al-dhihn, wa bil-baraka, aw bil-shu'um, wa al-kathir al-siyaha, wa al-kathir al-siyaha. Now, can I translate? Absolutely. Al-Masih is also the title of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrew, it is... Sorry, this is... Isa, uh, peace be upon him, for his blessedness. And I mentioned 50 derivations in my commentary on Mashariq uh, al-Anwar and others. The Antichrist, for his gloom, or he is like a knife, a piece of silver, sweat, believer, as well as the smooth coin 
and the anointed was something like oil, blessing, bad news, a frequent traveler, and a frequent fornicator. Not the most flattering description of this word. <laughs> Absolutely not. So this was what Butrus al-Bustani, a very practicing, religious, pious Christian, is excerpting from Al-Fayruz Abadi, the 15th century lexicographer. Exactly. Fascinating. So I'm guessing he adds something to this description or comments on it. Absolutely. So he continues in the, in the style of old lexicography, his own definition. Mm-hmm. And he says, وَالْمَسِيحِ لَقَبْ الرَّبْ يَسُوعَ وَهُوَ بِالْعَبْرَانِيَ مَشِيحَ وَبِالْسِرْيَانِيَ مَشِيحَ وَبِالْيَوْنَانِيَ خِرِسْتُسْ So to translate, Al-Masih is also the title of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrew, it is Mashiach, in Syriac, Mshiha, and in Greek, Christos. And they mean Mamsuh, anointed. He was thus called because he was anointed, Masaha, by God as a priest, prophet, and king. In ancient times, it was a custom to anoint priests and kings with oil, and the Antichrist is mentioned under a different root. And it is said that he is Masih, smooth, like a knife. And the Franks called him Antichrist. And it means against Christ. And the Masihi, Christian, is the one who belongs to Al-Masihiyya, Christianity. Which is, this is a more orthodox definition, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that Bustani is bringing in these multiple ancient languages, these biblical languages, as you say. So um, kind of thinking about the other people doing translations at this time or studying the Arabic language, the European Orientalists come to mind and they often linked Arabic to earlier languages, earlier Semitic languages. So could you comment on this passage? What is Bustani doing and how does that relate to the theories that other scholars are putting out there for the relationship between Arabic and um, Syriac or Aramaic or Hebrew. Thank you for this question. This is a really interesting question because I don't think Bustani would have been able to uh, advance such uh, theories about uh, the etymological roots of certain Arabic words had not the Orientalists been making assumptions and arguments, uh, etymological arguments about such words. Hmm. So what it seems that the Orientalists, uh, at least what we know from the history of people who worked with them, like Ahmad Faris Shadia, who writes in um, in one of his travelogues about, uh, in Europe, about his encounter with the Orientalists, that they were more interested in getting, they saw Arabic as like um, the newer dialect of, of those old Semitic <laughs> languages. Uh, they did not study it for its sake, in in a sense. They were looking to to come to go back to uh, to go further into the Bible and into biblical languages. Fascinating. I see in this a very interesting parallel with the historiography around the history of science, where um, those who study Greco-Arabic translations, which also go back to the eighth century, similar to the translations of the Bible. Um, 
they note, uh, or the earlier generation of scholarship was primarily interested in excavating a true Greek original from those texts with which are no longer extant in the Greek, but which are extant in Arabic translation. And the, uh, the very act of translation itself was at that moment in the 19th century seen or valued for how close it came to one-to-one transfer, just a transfer, a very passive transfer of knowledge. So, you know, this is fascinating to me. Of course, uh, that that then developed into a sort of past the baton narrative where knowledge is going from Greek, even if it's produced in Greek in, say, like Alexandria in the um, late antique period, into Arabic, and then it's sort of handed back to Latin. Are they valuing Arabic insofar as it is creatively different from these earlier languages, or do they see it more as perversions? I think they see Arabic as a medium in the same way. Okay. Uh, this is the medium that you have to cross to go to the other side, mm-hmm. to go to the to the side of real antiquity. They they have done that with the Greco-Arabic tradition, and they are doing it also with the Bible. Mm. When you read at least the travelogues coming to Palestine, especially what you notice, European, yeah, European travelogues uh, uh, of people who pilgrims to Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, you you get confronted with this. Uh, the, the, this need to sort of see beyond the Arabs, to go to this biblical truth, to the mm. bibli- to the site of biblical uh, knowledge, learning, constructions, structures, the history, the entire history. Mm-hmm. And the Arabs there are just, if they can help, that's great. But if they can't help, you just... Uh, it reminds me what you're saying uh, with the pilgrims that uh, were coming into Jerusalem and writing about uh, uh, Bible land, so to speak. Uh, this Bible land, the Arabs were there, but the Arabs were sort of an inconvenience. Hmm. They were the. This is what happens when you deviate too much from the biblical past. Uh, sorry, the biblical path. Very interesting. So, uh, what then comes from Muhid al-Muhid in terms of the narrative of the origin or the myth of origin for the Arabic language? In one sense, this, this Bible land uh, tradition that uh, becomes very powerful in the 19th century with all those tra- travelers coming from Europe and the U.S. and writing uh, Bible land uh, anthropologies and historiographies, Muhit al-Muhit becomes sort of the native uh, approach to that mm. in the sense that now you have all these uh, Western Westerners interested in the Levant as Bible land and you and you have uh, a native uh, scholar, an Arabist, Butrus al-Bustani, who is doing the same thing in, in the sense that he is recollecting the, um, the, the myth of origins of Bible land in the Levant. It's hard to say that the Christian Arabs were that interested in a myth of origins of, I mean, they knew they were living in the land of the Bible. That was not contested. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Bustani and in his Mohit, the Bible land narrative, as it comes into the etymologies of, the, of some of the words, competes with the Quran. Hmm. and recollect that this was the, uh, he's writing this lexicon 10 years after uh, the, the first civil war in Lebanon hmm. or Mount Lebanon uh, where you have Christians who have been massacred in Aleppo, Damascus and uh, Mount Lebanon so the sectarian sentiment is really very heightened mm-hmm. Christians feel persecuted at, at the same time they feel a lot 
more powerful because now they have, after the Tanzimat era, uh, their position politically and economically has improved. After 1860, they, uh, it improves even more because the, the powers, uh, the U.S., um, uh, sorry, the UK and France intervene on behalf of the Christians after that war and they chide the Ottomans for not protecting them from these massacres. Mm -hmm. So he is writing in this period of heightened sectarian con uh, 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 conflict and competition. Mm -hmm. uh, what he does with it in the lexicon is interesting because on the one hand, there has been Christians throughout the history of uh, the Islamic uh, empires, uh, they have uh, they have been they've worked on all walks of life as well they were not uh, maybe they were not sharia court uh, scholars but they were they had many of them had many uh, high positions in the courts and the majalis uh, of the khulafa so in one sense that is a history to be, to be uh, remembered uh, but at the same time as he was doing it at that time it was also competitive mm -hmm. um, in the sense that uh, it wanted to sideline the idea of uh, of Arab Arab civilization coming from Hejaz. He wanted to say no, but they after the after Hejaz they came to the Levant, and after they settled in the Levant, they learned civilization. They've become civilized only after they occupied us, so to speak. Fascinating. We're going to take a quick music break. Please enjoy this song by uh, the Ensemble Grand de la Voix. Grand de la Voix. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. This is Shireen Hamza talking to Rana Isa. So we were just talking about how Butrus al-Bustani, this, this mid-19th century figure, uh, Arab Christian figure, wrote a, an Arabic lexicon that traced the trajectory of the Arabic language from the Levant rather than the Hejaz. He basically decentered the birth of Islam and the Quran uh, and the Hadith from the uh, story of the Arabic language and replaced them with a different source text or rather complemented them with the Bible. So why did he do this? What was he seeking to do through writing this text? Uh, Bustani was interested in rewriting the Christians into uh, a more normative history of Arab civilization and culture. Mm -hmm. The lexicon was one of the texts that he produced uh, for that end, but there were others. He uh, he's written uh, also history of uh, 
encyclopedic works about uh, the, the history of Arabic uh, poetry. Mm-hmm. He has written several essays in his different, uh, in, uh, he has Da'irat Ma'arif, a major encyclopedia that he also produced, where he has many essays uh, on main figures in uh, uh, Arab Islamic or Islamic culture, he, with a lot of focus on the Christians, mm-hmm. uh, Christian thinkers and uh, scholars. So he's rewriting, in a sense, the history of uh, Christians in Arab civilization or in uh, or an Arabic civilization that is very much influenced by the presence of Christianity and of Arab Christians. Absolutely. But he's also doing something else, which I think is interesting. Or a consequence of this is that when we think of, uh, when we tend to think of Arab, we often think of Islam. Mm-hmm. And he wants to disentangle these two. He wants us to be able to think of Arab without necessarily having to think of Islam. So he's bringing in, in a sense, he's creating a new chronology and a new source for the Arabic language. What are some ways that we see that working out in the text? Well, absolutely. I mean, the chronology thing is very interesting with Al-Bustani. Uh, not just for this lexicon, I, I think across his entire work. Um, with the lexicon, etymology is um, is where he makes his chronological argument. So when you move from Hijaz to the Levant, what you're basically also doing is moving to an earlier monotheistic religion. So you're asserting, um, asserting your right to culture, uh, to cultural elitism, because you were there first. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. But he does that also in, pe- in texts that people know better, like Khutbah fi Adab al-Arab, the speech on the on the literature of the Arabs or the arts of the Arabs, which is a very famous khutbah that uh, Bustani gave in 1859, so one year before the civil war uh, erupted in uh, the mountains. Mm-hmm. And in that khutbah, uh, you see him not only asserting the Christian translators of the Greco-Arab tradition, for example. Right. He, bec- uh, he starts naming them. and name bin Ishaq, etc., etc. And really inflating their uh, role as, uh, inflating that moment, that event of translation as that, the, the, the cultural event that we need to celebrate and remember and recollect. Uh, uh, but he also uh, rewrites Islamic uh, conquest history using the Gregorian calendar. Now, that at that particular period, the Gregorian calendar was not the dominant calendar. Mm-hmm. So doing that, that was an introduction of the Gregorian cal- calendar as a way to organize history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he writes, for example, Amr bin Laas occupied Alexandria in the year 640 after Christ. Fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah, we're not really used to necessarily hearing and um, the positioning of that event in relation to uh, Jesus rather than the prophet Muhammad. Absolutely, especially not in that. Maybe now, but not in that period. Right, good point. So Levantine history becomes really crucial for him. How about the current culture uh, of his time, the contemporary culture of his time among Arab Christians? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you rewrite uh, Islamic history in a way that highlights, emphasizes uh, Levantine history and this Bible land uh, narrative, uh, what you do, what you're doing, you're doing that for political, specific political reasons in the present, in mm-hmm. his present, mm-hmm. and that present was, as I said, uh, tainted by the civil war, by mm-hmm. the massacres of the Christians, uh, but also by their aspirations for 
national autonomy. This is an argument uh, made much earlier, actually, by But uh, Butrus Abumenni, the historian, who uh, who traces three competing ideologies to Butrus Albustani, and these are Christian right-wing ideology, uh, Syrian nationalist ideology, mm -hmm. and pan-Arabism. Hmm. In one sense, if, if you want to think of Christian right-wing ideology, that's if you want the use of the Bible and Bible land ideal, ideas, narratives, and myths, myths of origin as the groundwork for uh, asserting uh, national autonomy, political uh, autonomy. Mm. Uh, with Syrian national nationalist ideology is a, is a more secular form of... Uh, of ideology at that time, of nationalist ideology. Uh, and this is regionalism. So he, this is a, a regionalism that sees Syria, and especially when, when, he, uh, when he makes the argument that the Arabs were ummiyin, the ummat al-Arab ummiyin, illiterate. Uh, they are illiterate until they come to al-Watan, al-Watan being Syria, and that's when they... So after they occupied the Levant, they've become civilized, is his argument. Mm -hmm. This is a very potent argument at the, at the time, especially for Christians who wanted to move, uh, to break away from the Turks as well. Mm -hmm. And 1870 is a crucial moment for that. That is the, the emergence of anti-Turkish sentiment in the Levant as well. So by positioning the Arabic language as uh, having really come to fruition or come to its height through uh, Islamic armies movement into the Levant, they're sort of claiming their ancestors or their um, civilizational influence on the language and um, the foundational way in which it helped it develop language and land because language and land become uh, fused in the 19th century not just for the arabs not just for bustani i mean this is this happens in turkey mm. with the Tur the turkification of the ottoman language or or in pakistan and india or in the, the hebrew language and its emergence relationship to the land even the french and the english languages mm -hmm. have these relationships to land This is the Syro-Lebanese identity that you mention in the title of your article. In 1870, this lexicon is putting forward this identity, but it sounds like there are many other sources uh, that are also putting forth this sort of cultural um, nucleus uh, as related to the Arabic language. What about the Nahda or the revival of Arabic language and literature as a whole? What can we learn from this text about the narratives that we have and how, how does this story fit within the Nahda scholarship? But Butrus al-Bustani is a major foundation, foundational Nahda figure. Um, he is foundational because he's considered to have modernized uh, the language. What has he modernized? So he has started his own newspaper, an important uh, newspaper, Al-Jinan, but he also had Al-Janna and Al-Bustan. He's written... Uh, a modern encyclopedia where he translates all the concepts. So he, he's publishing uh, an encyclopedia where you have the lexeme in Arabic and then one in French and in English together so that you can look better. If you, if you go to the Britannica, you can find it really quickly. So there's a lot of translation going on from the West. Wow, he didn't have much time for fun, did he? No, <laughs> he did not. He was, he was a good Protestant. So, <laughs> so in terms of the Nahda, this is, he, he was the foundational father of the Nahda. He, uh, he told us how to read uh, 
how to become civilized and how what is the way to progress and this mm-hmm. way really was uh, paved with translation cultural translation from the west really he was not uh, although he had perhaps paradoxical relations with the missionaries he fought with them at some point and broke off eventually and he chided his countrymen for wearing western dress or or using western languages on on their tongue he did that he did mm. those things mm-hmm. a complicated figure yes just for the nahda uh, what having him as a foundational figure in the nahda is interesting also because it becomes uh, a way to sort of question those uh, native scholars who were so very close to colonial powers. Hmm. What kind of relationships are these that we're looking at? What What is this legacy that we call modernity? So Bhattar Salbustani, who makes space within the origin story of Arabic for religious traditions besides Islam, could we have a modern standard Arabic without that sort of expansive uh, or more expansive narrative of of Arabic? One that is, if not secular, at least decoupled from the uh, sacred history of the Islamic world. It's I. It's interesting that you mentioned that it is uh, the other religious uh, groupings because it is uh, an important point to emphasize that although the Bible here is uh, extremely important as a text to understand what happened in his lexicon and Mahit al-Mahit, in Mahit al-Mahit he also includes the Shias, the Sufis, the Druze, other people. Huh. Uh, maybe he does not go back to their foundational texts, but he has space for them too. So in one sense, his Mahit al-Mahit looks like Beirut or Lebanon at the time, made up of those composite identities. So he's making space for minorities in his history of Arabic, mm. not just uh, the Christian history. Absolutely. So in that is that the sense in which you're using the word secular in your article? Yes, in, in the sense of a sectarianized secularism. One that looks more like uh, Osama Magdis's argument in cultures of sectarianism, where sectarianism is understood by Osama Magdisi as a modern construct. Uh, that is not to say that there has not been uh, a millet system mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. but sectarianism and its unfolding as a, as a popular more democratic, I would say, even form of uh, rule. Highly violent, yes, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, but where you see that it moves from a politics of notables to a politics of um, populace, if you want. Mm-hmm. That's what sectarianism is. And that's what he's doing as well with language. Hmm. Ranaisa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Shireen, for having me. This has also been wonderful for me to talk about this. Listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic can visit our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Rana has provided us with a bibliography and some images related to our conversation. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>